Wow, that was beautiful. And it comes right here at the moment in the book of Ephesians when we turn from the more doctrinal passages of chapters 1 through 3 to the very practical, earthy application of the great truths of the gospel starting in chapter 4. And there's one thing for sure as we come to chapter 4. This life which God has called you to live on the planet is lived in a community connected to other people. And all of the giftedness that the Holy Spirit does is so that every need may be supplied in the body right out of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So God has called you to live in connection with brothers and sisters in Christ. This is your high and noble calling. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1. God's care expressed as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. I told you we're going to run across the word worthy. He is worthy. We are unworthy. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make Every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, One baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And it is the great intention of the apostle that the marvelous truths previously described now will be applied in the daily walk of the believer. That's what he intends. God is accomplishing his eternal purposes in the church. And we find the church mentioned in these lofty passages where he reaches up to the highest heaven and the lowest earth. These grand truths fulfilled in the church. And now it comes down to the nitty gritty where the rubber meets the road. Your life on the planet day by day, in your family, in your marriage. And he begins the passage by saying, as a prisoner for the Lord then, 
And it's the second time he mentioned that he's a prisoner. Later on, he will call himself God's ambassador in chains. And I think the apostle is saying to his first readers and to we later readers, look, this is the extent to which I have given my life to Christ and the gospel. I am a prisoner. So what has happened to you? What have you sacrificed? What changes have come your way because you are a believer in Jesus? Because you have followed him as a prisoner for the Lord then. And I think about what Paul has given up in his incarceration. I picture him, it may not be so, but I picture him as a lonely person in a cell. Maybe he is under house arrest. Some people have suggested that at the end of the book of Acts. Maybe there are various ways in which he is being held. He is in chains. He is in bonds. But I know this, he is missing the fellowship of the church. And he longs for people to come and see him. And when he is depressed, God sends Christian people to him and they comfort him with their presence. And when they don't show up, he is upset because he is vitally connected to the church. He loves his brothers and sisters. He longs to see them. And when he begins to describe the walk that is worthy, he does so in the context of the living community of faith. The brothers and sisters, so this is not a Lone Ranger thing. What God is doing in His church, what He has called you to live, how He has called you to live. It's not you, the Lone Ranger. This life worthy of the calling you have received is in powerful connection. A just your daily living to your calling. Live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Adjust your daily life to your calling. Every day, in every way, remember your vocation. You are called to be a follower of Jesus. And in every situation in your life, that makes a difference. And this life that you are to live out there in the world should measure up to the calling God has placed on you. Now, when I think about that, I get a little hopeless inside. And maybe that happens to you. I know God is worthy. I know He alone is worthy. I know I am saved by grace and I don't deserve it. And Paul has clearly explained that in Ephesians chapter 2. It is by grace you are saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works. So you are an unworthy sinner to whom God has extended his care and his love and his grace. And you have placed your faith in Christ. And as an unworthy sinner now, you are called to live a life that is worthy. So something new is happening in you. The Holy Spirit is doing to change the way you live, to change the way you think. So that your expression 
your incarnation of the gospel on the planet matches up with your calling. Now listen, all the words that you can speak to try to explain the gospel will not get through if your lifestyle doesn't match what you're saying. You got to have both the behavior and the verbal testimony. They go together. So, Lord, what does it mean to live a life worthy of the calling you have received? And when he, when he says that, and I know that I am called to be God's son and God's servant, when he says that, I wonder, okay, what kind of life is worthy? Is he going to tell me to plunge into the world without fear, have courage and determination and perseverance, shoot for the stars, be grand in your dreams and your schemes. No, instead, this is the life that is worthy. This is what he emphasizes now. Now, we are called to take the land and be courageous, but when he says a life that is worthy of the calling, he moves right to be completely what? Humble. Here's the life that is worthy. Be completely humble. And this is the word for humble that includes the word mind. So it is lowly of mind in the old Bible. And it's the idea that your mind is changed. See, the lifestyle that is consistent with your calling will reflect a change in the way you think about yourself. You're not the high and mighty anymore. You know you're a sinner saved by grace. And the humility of your salvation in grace stays with you every day. You don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. As if you are some select group that achieves some moral excellence. And therefore you are part of the family of God. No. It is complete humility when you know there's nothing in you that can satisfy the demand and call of God. Nothing in you that can merit your presence in the throne room. Nothing. Don't forget where you came from. Be completely humble and gentle. Now, this is the life that's worthy. Humility and gentleness. And the word for gentle is the word to tame an animal. All right? You're to be tamed. Have you let God tame you yet? You wild stallion, has God finally got you tamed? There's a, there's a proverb that says, don't be like a horse or a mule. That has to have a whip and a bit in its mouth. I used to ride horses when I was a boy. and If you had that bit in that mouth, then you could turn that beast. But it was a much more enjoyable experience to ride if the horse was neck trained. And just a touch on the neck of those reins. And the horse immediately moves. To be completely gentle is for you to learn how to be sensitive to every directive 
from the Holy Spirit. This is the lordship of Christ in your life. So you are submissive to him in every way. Be completely tamed. Be lowly of mind. This is the life that is worthy of the calling you've received. You think to yourself, well, I don't know if the lowly and the, and the gentle are really the ones that are getting things done in the world. Well, go back to your teacher, Jesus. He said, blessed are the what? Meek. For what? They shall inherit the earth. You get impatient with that, don't you? You just want to go in there and fix it, don't you? Yep. You want to fix it or fix it where nobody else can, you know? Get your crowbar out, you can get it done. That's why the follow-up to humility and gentleness is patience. And this is the word macro. You know what a macro is, don't you? Something that brings all these... Macro is long, large suffering. Macrothumia. Thumia has in it that idea of the heat of suffering. And to be living a life that is worthy of the calling you have received is to be long-suffering. To be patient as God works on you and the people around you. One of the reasons we get impatient is because we don't believe that the meek inherit the earth. (laughs) It still hasn't dawned on us that it's true. That love is more powerful than hate. That gentleness is more powerful than being rough and taking control. We have not yet understood the power of submission and gentleness. And it is a power that rules the world. Jesus came into Jerusalem meek and gentle. And riding on a donkey. And the scripture describes him as gentle. Oh, they wanted him to take up the sword. Let's beat up these Romans. Oh, no. There's a power I am going to unleash in the world that a sword or a gun or a tank or a bomb cannot touch. It is the power of of a surrendered life laid down in love on the behalf of the Savior and of the brother. This is the life worthy. And it changes the world. Be patient because you're living with people with flaws and they are too. So you're going to have to bear with one another. How am I going to do that? That person so irritates me. These people that are put proximate to us, that are near us, that God puts into our life, the more we know of them, the more we rub against each other. It's after time that we discover how different we are in marriage and family. 
And the differences test our relationships and covenants and commitments. And God knows that, so he says, I want you to bear with one another, just like I've been bearing with you. I didn't throw you over the cliff first time you messed up after I saved you. I've been putting up with a lot in your life. A lot of things you've kept out of line. Sometimes you've been disobedient. Those attitudes you haven't correct. I've put up with a lot in your life. I've been long-suffering with you. I've bared with you. I want you to bear with one another. And if you stop bearing with one another, it's because you forgot where you came from. What I saved you from. So you forgot now. You think you're high and mighty. You think you've achieved where others haven't. No, no. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Bearing with one another in love. This is the life God calls you to. This is it. This is the life that is worthy. Yeah, but I was born with a quick temper. Hey, God can work on that. Don't you dismiss your temper as something that's just in you that you cannot change. Listen to me. God came into your life to change those things. He's pounding it out of you. He's conforming you moment by moment, glory by glory, into the image of His Son. He fully intends to change the way you think, the way you act, the habits you've had. Even the person you are converting you into the person He wants you to be and down deep inside you want to be. So, let the Holy Spirit do His work. This is the life that is worthy. A life of submission. Tamed by the Spirit of God. Intent on adjusting my daily life to the calling I have received in Christ. He says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Maintain the bond of unity. This is going to test you too. Just like it does in your marriage. It also does in the church of Jesus Christ. As we gather together as imperfect human beings. As we go to our Bible study classes and we start sharing prayer concerns. And we interact with one another. God has always cared more for unity in His church. Than His church seems to have cared. It has never meant as much to us as it meant to the Lord Jesus who on the night he prayed in the garden said, Lord, make them one as you and I are one that they may be one that the world may know that you sent me. Something will be lost if they cannot maintain the unity of the Spirit. And it will always test you to maintain the unity. It is tough. Just like it is in your marriage. I asked an old deacon once, when I was young, I said, what's the secret to maintaining that marriage? He said, you just hang on, even if it takes all the hide. You have to be kind of an old farmer to understand when that rope is passing through your hands and you're trying to hold on and it's ripping the skin off you. You just hold on if it takes all the hide. Yeah, that's what he wants you to do in his church. 
You're going to look around, you're going to say to yourself, there are hypocrites in this church. But if you're honest, there are days you walk through that door and you think, what am I doing here? (laughs) How dare I? The things I think that rattle around in my brain that go around in my heart. See, the reason you pass judgment on your brother is because you're not completely humble and gentle. You're not broke yet. Still thinking you're high and mighty. Maintain the unity of the Spirit. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Through the bond of peace. God's going to bring peace in your life. This peace is not an absence of conflict. Sometimes we think about peace as an absence of conflict. I'm at peace when there are all my fightings over. No. Paul knew better than that. He'll say at the end of his life, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I've been pressing toward the mark. I've been going against resistance. I've been overcoming the opposition. All his life he knew that. He knew conflict every day when he got up. Peace is not about the absence of conflict. This is what peace is in your life. It is you moving toward the goal God has given you without throwing up barriers that frustrate your progress. Peace is you moving toward who God has called you to be. You know this on your insides because when you're doing the things you feel called to do, that's when you feel blessed, energized, and ready to go. You're at peace. You're doing what God's called you to do. And when you get out of that realm and you start doing stuff God has not called you to do and you're not making progress toward your goal as a believer, that's when you are frustrated, confused, and even angry and upset and it spills over in your life. The bond of peace is you making progress. Being completely humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another, walking that daily life that is worthy of the calling you have received. The peace God intends for you to have is a peace with Him, a peace with one another, and a peace within the context of your life. God's at work in you to bring about His peace. Now, Paul has already told us what peace is. Chapter 2, verse 14. Jesus Himself is our peace. He's broken down every wall. So if you can just get your eyes on him, you're going to do good. Sister, you're going to do good. Don't start looking at people. They're going to disappoint you. They're going to confuse you. They're going to upset you. You start watching people. And people are going to frustrate you. But you keep your eyes on Jesus... Looking unto Him, 
the author and finisher of our faith, and Jesus will never disappoint you. He will never frustrate or confuse you. If he is the focus of your life, then you will make progress towards your goal and you will have peace. For some of us, peace means returning to the basics we have abandoned. Prayer, Bible reading, worship, active involvement in the body of believers. We're not going to be at peace if we're truly his until those things are happening in our life. Some of you are praying that God will reveal to you a decision you are trying to make and you're out of his will in the basic things. How are you going to hear from God when you're walking so far from him? How are you going to know what he's speaking to you? It is basics of following Jesus that bring you peace. Now, rehearse the seven ones of this passage, okay? He has called us to unity in the body. He has called us to loving one another. Every need being supplied as we live together in a loving community of faith. And he says, as a climax to all that, for there is one body... That's the body of the church. And one spirit, that is the Holy Spirit who energizes the church. You know what I pray when I come to this place to deliver God's word? I pray the Holy Spirit will fill the room. Because we must have something happen here that a human being cannot do. God must do it. There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to what? One hope. What is that one hope? It's not your talent. It's not your ability. It's not your nationality. It's not your family. It's the Lord Jesus. Your one hope is in him. You were called to one hope when you were called, and that is in Jesus. One Lord. That's Jesus. Now, he's already mentioned one spirit, one Lord. One God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. I went to see the movie Avatar this week. How many of you have seen it? Yeah, it's the highest grossing movie in the history of movies. So a lot of people have seen it. Very powerful movie. It has a definite theology, doesn't it? It has a theology of the earth. In the movie Avatar, you get the idea that God is nature and nature is God. And it's intentional. It's communicated. There are spirits in the trees. You can hear the ancestors when you connect up to nature You might read one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all and think, well, that's the God in Avatar. It's not. That's not the God in Avatar. 
the God in Avatar has been a God worshipped for generations, the God of nature that combines nature and God. And I want to show you this in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Verse 4, so then about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is what? We know that an idol is what? Nothing. You know, there are passages where the prophets talk to the people who live among animists. And their neighbors go and pray to trees and things made of wood and of stone as if these trees and stones can hear them. And there's one point at which the prophet says, go talk to him. And so they go talk to God. Well, maybe he's not listening. Of course, he has no ears. He cannot hear. He has no eyes. He cannot see. Now, brothers and sisters, you've got to get this, okay? The God of the Bible is over all. He is a God who is separate from his creation, who reigns over his creation, and who created everything there is. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world. This is 1 Corinthians 8. And that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods, in quotes, and many lords, in quotes, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. This return to animism and pantheism and the identification of God with nature, in the end, will be a great disappointment. See, this is not the God who can divide the Red Sea. Make the lame man walk. Make the blind man see. This is not the God who is all-powerful. And that is even a confession in the movie where they are praying to the God. And the woman says, he only protects the cycle of life. That's all this God does. Our God is beyond and above and apart from nature. He made it all. We do not pray to trees. We pray to God who made it all. We don't pray to rocks. Nobody loves nature more than me, okay? I love it out there. I mean, were any of you picking up pecans this week? And I was listening to that brook that was running behind me as I was picking up those pecans. And the 
Little lambs were bleeding. It is beautiful. And I love it. But if I, in my mind, say, this is God. And I equate God with nature. Then God loses all power to save. And I am simply in the unending cycle of life that just keeps going around and around and around. And Christianity not only believes that God is apart from nature, but that history is linear, that it had creation, as the Big Bang suggests, and that it is going on a path to God's intended and appropriate destination when he will consummate all things in Christ, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. He intends to redeem not only us but the planet through Jesus. So God is on course to accomplish what he began in creation that he will end in the consummation. And we are not entrapped in some cycle of infinity that's going nowhere. This was the amazing thing to Abraham. The God that exists apart from the world. This is the God who reaches down and is mighty to save. You say, well, what about the world? It's clear. God is creator. He made it all. He made you. You are special in that you are given dominion on the planet to tend it and to keep it. And the ethic we have as Christians of the environment is an ethic of stewardship, tending and keeping what belongs to another. And we need to be stronger on it as Christians. We need to talk about it more. That the world is ours to tend and keep, but it's not ours in ownership. God owns it. I don't know about you, but when somebody gives me something of theirs to let me use, I am very careful with it. And that's how we should be about what God has given us. One God and Father. He's the Father. There are times when he is called mother. You may say, well, why isn't he called the mother God? Most of the earth religions call God mother. Because of the connection between the mother and the womb. And there's a closer identification of the womb and the mother than with the father. With the father, there is a step away. And I don't want to push that too far because God is sometimes compared to a mother. But the father is just a step away from the child. And that distance you must preserve if you are to be faithful in worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Bible, and the God who sent his son, Jesus, to save us. Does God care about the planet and our situation on it? Yes. How do you know? Because he himself became flesh 
in Jesus of Nazareth. He became flesh. He walked the planet. He's not ignoring us. He came here. He entered into our plight and our trouble. He has the qualifications to be our high priest because he has experienced life like we experience it. And he has affirmed life in his humanity in Christ. He calls us to himself because he made us for himself. And we find our highest purpose when we are worshiping him. Outside of him, we can do nothing. Maybe you've never trusted Jesus as Savior because you've always sort of thought of nature as God. It's not. He made it all, including you. And he worked out his plan through his son to save you. Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for your moral failure. To satisfy the just demands of a holy God. And to open the way to the holy place for you. Let's bow together. If you've never trusted Jesus, this would be a great moment to say, Lord, I need you. I need your help and strength in my life. I confess my sin to you. I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sin. I want you in my life. And I invite you to come in. Would you pray that prayer of confession, receiving Christ as Lord? Lord, we pray today that you would have your way in us and help our responses to bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.